You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Jenna Pollock. Jenna is a dancer, a teacher, and a truly innovative artist. We weren't at Juliet at the same time, but about a year and a half ago, I was lucky enough to be paired with her and violinist Michelle Ross for a program run within the school. We created a 20-minute piece utilizing these incredible interactive technologies. And while I learned a lot of things from that project, the best thing that I came away with was a relationship with Jenna. I admire her drive, her curiosity, her ability to think outside of the box, and her adventurous spirit. We spoke over Skype while she was at home in Chicago, right before she left for Barcelona, where she is now. And you'll hear all about what she's up to in this conversation. I hope you enjoy the 46th episode of The Compass. What do you do to try to not go to the dark side as an artist? Which is a hard question, but there it is. Yeah, well, as I showed you, I took many notes. <laughs> I'm a note person, I'm a list person. And I came up with a bunch of stuff that I do because if nothing else, I just try. And sometimes I just try myself into a huge hole, but I will never, ever give up. <laughs> so my list includes... Um, it's also, it's really important for me to identify why I'm feeling a certain way. So if I'm feeling that, you know, either A, I'm not affecting as much change or I'm not doing as much as I feel like I could do, then I start to feel bad about myself. Mm-hmm. Or two, if I'm not fitting in with the um, expectations that are set out for me or for people in my field. And the irony there, I find, is that it seems that often the art world is a place where people feel like if they're outcast, they'll be accepted and that it's a place to be oneself. And yet there are still these like very clear hierarchies and standards that are set for us. So for example, when I feel like I'm getting stuck in that um, mindset of like, Oh, I'm not meeting expectations or not doing what I'm supposed to be doing or what I was trained to do. I have to just really re-identify for myself what the value systems are. Like, um, so I recently finished, um, a season with Scottish dance theater in Europe. And after that, I took some time to go visit some friends who were also dancing and companies around. And I did two auditions in particular that like really 
helped shape my value system moving forward. One of which was um, this company in Germany, mm-hmm. and I got to the end of this private audition, and they sort of kept me like 26-year-old, muscular, you know, says what's on her mind kind of gal. And then this beautiful 18-year-old ballet school graduate, wafy, deer-eyed, um, obedient, but also just like so ripe with so much. And, you know, obviously she has a lot to offer, but was different than me. And I sort of found this to be like the epitome of, or like the theme, the reoccurring theme that I found with a lot of auditions is like, these companies often don't know exactly what they want from women. It's like they either want someone that they can mold or they want someone with a ton of experience. And for me, if there's if they're not clear about which one they want, then I shouldn't be trying so hard to fit into that ideal or to fit into that company. Yeah. So that audition was a really important um, moment for me to say, well, if, if it's that hard of a decision for them, then maybe it's not appropriate that I'd be there anyways. And then I was also auditioning for a company in France, and I felt like I was getting really good vibes, and they told me they liked me, and they're like, you should come back in, um, in a couple weeks and bring your point shoes. And I haven't done point in six years, you know? <laughs> but of course, you know, I wanted the job. So I said, okay, like, yeah, definitely. I'll email you the times when, you know, I'm able to come back. I'll bring my shoes. It's fine. And of course, I don't, not only have I not even done point in six years, I don't even think I own pointes anymore. <laughs> so then I go to Barcelona, which is my next stop on my little Euro trip, um, where I'm actually going to, at this point, visit the school that I'm now going to be attending the next day. And I'm at this dance store in the city buying point shoes so I can wear them to this audition that I'll go back to. Hmm. And I'm at the counter. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> I to wear point shoes. I'm not comfortable on point. I'm not, I don't feel safe on point anymore. Right. Again, why am I trying so hard to fit into this ideal or this value system that does not belong to me? So dealing with the dark side is also just reevaluating where I stand, where I decide to stand. I have to decide for myself. And that's, uh, it's been really helpful to think about it that way. To find what's really important to you. Yeah, exactly. And not just what's important to someone who is perceived as successful. Mm -hmm. Something else? Yeah, finding outlets and rituals that are important to me. Mm -hmm. So, like, I hear a lot about, like, okay, well, I, you know, my friends do a lot of, like, meditating and, and journaling. And those are totally valid. And those are awesome. They just don't work for me. So I also have to be careful to not get down on myself. Like, oh, I'm not doing, like, the right the right outlet. I'm not, you know, you know, decompressing in the way that artists should, you know, right. it's, it's like, and, and often, so, so we're also all walking contradictions, right? So sometimes I sit down and I journal and I find a ton of clarity, but often I feel like when I journal, I'm just being even more indulgent than I already am as like a living artist. Do you know what I mean? So <laughs> I have to also just not get down on myself for feeling like, I don't wake up every morning and journal, you know? So (laughs) I do other things. So, like, when I lived in New York, I frequented this place called Brooklyn Brainery a lot. They offer, like, classes and workshops, um, everything under the sun. Like, I took a Physics 101 class. I took a writing class. I took, like, a baking class. Yeah, go. You should totally go. It's an awesome place. I met people that I still keep in touch with. that, yeah, just getting, like, my head out of my zone is really important for me. 
And um, this summer has been like a perfect example of that. I just finished a three class course through Harvard Business School. They have this new certificate program called CORE and they talk about it being like sort of pre-business school or like the language of business trying to give you like a like um like a head start exactly yeah. especially you know as more non-traditional candidates start applying you know even if they're accepted oftentimes they don't enter the school or so you know so this program says with like the sort of prerequisite knowledge that would be so advantageous as people start these programs so mm-hmm. um I applied on a whim and was accepted and used like the tiny bit of savings I had left to pay for it. Plus I did this weird convention here in Chicago where I dressed up in this big blue fat suit. I was, I was like a, <laughs> I was bacteria cause I was working at a floor tile convention. And so I was like the bacteria that their antimicrobial formula had kicked out. So I sat, I stood dancing in front of this tile convention for eight hours, five days, and one week. Oh, and my God. through that, I was able to pay for this course, which is, like, it's just, like, the funniest story. Talk but, about meditation. Yeah. <laughs> I needed a lot of meditation in that suit. Let me tell you. But that course was so, has proved so advantageous to me. And Was it an online course? Yeah. It's on, it's on this online platform, and I was super um, hesitant to get on board at first because I was, like, because they talk a lot about... Um, the importance and actually like the grading weight that comes with interacting with your peers and like the different chat functions and like discussion based things that go on on the platform and I was like oh yeah sure like a like a peer kumbaya circle yeah right you know (laughs) gives a fuck Um, but actually the platform is structured in a way that really does encourage peer learning in a way Mm. that I didn't even think was possible especially for a layman like me yeah. And um, it's like, compre- like the, there are videos, but they're not like our lectures followed by a quiz. Like the videos are no longer than like two or three minutes. And then you read a case study and then you answer some practice questions and then you check out a graph and play with how certain factors affect outputs. And then there's a cold call and you have to, in two minutes or less, like deduce an answer based on the logic that you've just been given so it goes through Hmm. like a really wide array and rotates through these different devices to get you to learn the material and um it's on your own time as well so there are weekly deadlines but um you can do it on your own time which is great for me because you know I live the gypsy life so yeah (laughs) and it's it's but it was so important to me and I was trying to think today of ways in which I could talk about how this information would have been helpful before. So, for example, when I first graduated college, I danced at the Metropolitan Opera in New York first season. And that was the year where the final negotiations were taking place about the disbandment of the dance company, because now there's no more dance company. And that was a really fascinating thing to be a part of, especially as like a freshman dancer. How, like, what's happening? Why are dancers being taken off salary why um are we not are we losing all of our benefits why do we now have to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. and it was I mean I could only sort of I could attend all the union meetings I wanted but you know it was I was in no place to say anything and now you know taking this class for example or these three classes um learning like where costs come from and like where revenue comes from it's not just like salaried dancers at the Met. It's like 
costs come from negotiating with, you know, suppliers of the costumes and the and the sets that we purchase and, and rent. And they come from in ticket sales, but also um, it, it, they come in different, in many different formats. So what customers want to pay, what um, suppliers want to pay, what workers want to pay. And the way they framed it to us when they were cutting the dancers was that you're too expensive. And now that I have this class, I'm able to mm-hmm. just like very definitively see that it's much more of a complicated picture but when you're at the bottom of the totem pole you're never told that you know yeah so that's really interesting for me to look in retrospect and um also just like managerial accountability like one of the things I really struggled with in my company in Scotland was um we would we're on salary right it was the dream job you perform or you dance and rehearse eight hours a day, five, six days a week, and you get paid. And it's this glorious thing, <laughs> healthcare, and it's like, right. it's what we dream about doing. Of course. And then we perform and tour, and there'd be like six people in the audience, you know, and you're like, wait, but we want to share everything that we've been working on. Right. And then if nobody's there, it just makes everything we do in the studio so much more, or just infinitely more precious in a way that, like, I don't think is particularly useful or like satisfying long-term. And so we would ask these questions like, well, why weren't there people in the audience, you know? And then like the company would say, oh, well, the theaters didn't promote the show enough. And then the theaters would say, oh, well, the company didn't promote the show enough. And it would be the same story in every city we would go to. And I start to think about like, well, we're all funded by the government. So there's no one really necessarily taking accountability for the lack of ticket sales. Like ticket sales are like a nice plus, but they don't affect our bottom line and how we're ultimately able to run and pay people. And I'm totally, I'm reducing it very much for the sake of the argument, but point being, it was like there was no accountability in a way that I think could have definitely increased our quality of life in the company and our satisfaction with what we were doing and how important it was or wasn't, you know, but um, that was huge for me. And working, so also in New York, one of the things I did to pay for Gypsy Life was I was a personal assistant for a couple of years uh-huh. for one of my biggest role models in the planet, Alexandra Wells, who um, is a former Juilliard faculty member and runs Springboard Dance Montreal in Quebec. And um, we helped set up, finally, Springboard as a official non-for-profit, both in the U.S. and in Canada. Uh-huh. And... We codified processes and, you know, set up templates for text and mission statements and, you know, just made sure that things were flowing and made sense and that Alexandra didn't have to reinvent the wheel every time she opened her inbox because she's too busy and too smart for that. So we just decided to put in, put processes in place to streamline everything. And now knowing the different incentives through this course about, you know, nonprofit and for-profit companies, I feel like that information could have definitely helped inform how I set those things up all those years ago. I mean, I still think we did a great job, but... Right, but it's interesting that you were already involved in several things that were in this world before you had this codified class to teach you about how it should be done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not even to me how it should be done, but... Or how it, how it can be done. Yeah, yeah, or, like, how you cannot 
eat ramen while doing it. (laughs) That's a good distinction. (laughs) So that's been a really important thing for me to stay out of the dark side because it gives me not only context for art and the art that I make, but also different tools in which I can handle it. So I'm not just beating myself over the head with the same old things. And I also feel like I'm um, taking charge. Like I can't just complain about it. I can't do that. I mean, I complain a lot, but I also like to think that... <laughs> we all have our moments. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so tell me about this program you're about to start in Spain. Yeah, it's a nine-month master's program at the Institute of the Arts Barcelona. Uh, the university opened like two years ago. It's brand new, and this is the first year of the master's program. So I'm part of the inaugural class, which seems really exciting. And what's the title of the program? Is it a, just a master's in dance, or is it something more specific? Yeah, it's a master's in dance formally. Um, we're going to be dancing every day, taking class. But my focus, hopefully, um, what I've discussed with them, is going to be making work and producing work. And okay. um, not traditional dance work, either. Like, more the stuff that you and I make. <laughs> <laughs> that interests me much more. Yeah. So... Especially being at a place like Juilliard, as you know, everybody's so talented. So you, know, you get to this place of such training and rigor where the idea of making yet another dance piece of cool moves and like the metrics of success or how well other people execute your cool moves and look like you is just like so, like A, it's just uninteresting to me, but B, I think there are so many people who are better at it. So I don't want to do that. Yeah, you're trying to play with the forms itself and yeah expand those yeah I hope to find some partners in Barcelona and in Sitges um Sitges is the name of the city where we actually are it's sort of like the the city just west of Barcelona um but I hope to find some cultural partners there do you speak Spanish poquito Uh (laughs) my Spanish is terrible um I took French in school because of ballet, so there's uh, some, um, it's not like a completely uh, horrible thing for me to read, but I'm terrible at speaking it. Um, I have my Rosetta Stone, I have my Duolingo, it's just, it definitely took a backseat to my business courses this summer, Yeah. and I hate to say that, but no, you can't do everything, and that's also been a really hard lesson for me to learn, because I try to do so many things at one time, and I overcommit constantly. I never stop learning that lesson. (laughs) But when you're there and you're immersed in it, I'm sure it'll come to you faster than you think. I I think so. I hope so. Yeah, that's the that's definitely the best way to learn with languages, and that is my intention. Um, Though in Barcelona they largely speak Catalan, so um, that's a whole other ball game. But the last thing I want to do is show up as the American woman, the white American woman, open my mouth and have an American flag come out, you know, like, it's just (laughs) so embarrassing and entitled. So definitely as I gear up in these next two weeks and like the bureaucratic loose ends of my visa process and things Mm -hmm. like that are ending, I will have much more time to do like Rosetta Stone marathons. That is definitely (laughs) written in pen in my agenda. How does your family feel about you making this big move? Uh, I mean, I know that you were already away in Scotland last year, but... I mean, I I mean, we all say this, right? We have the best family in the world. Mm-hmm. My parents are also musicians, um, artists, so they understand the dark side, and they understand 
the satisfaction that comes with doing one's craft. So they've always supported me, um, and they're excited for me. However, being home in Chicago for the last like three or four months has been so spoiled, spoiling for all of us. <laughs> My sister lives in the city as well. Yeah. So it's just it's been such a tease. I, we've definitely gotten back into a family rhythm and um, a familiarity that you definitely lose when it's just over Skype. So, like, my mom and I, whenever whenever I leave, whenever I'm, like, home to visit and then I leave again, we she always drives me to the airport and we always sit in the car crying for, like, a minute before Aww. I leave. And so now it's, it's just going to be so much harder this time. Like, she's already, like, preparing herself for that cry now two, three weeks before I even leave. And usually it's, like, you know, a couple of days before I go. It's just going to... The weight of me leaving is going to be so much heavier. However, they couldn't be any more excited for me my dad wants me to go back to business school and make money because then he gets to retire so uh, <laughs> so he fully supports my dancing this isn't really something I've been able to ask anyone else what was it like for you as a kid to grow up with parents who are artists great question when I was really young my parents were performing like almost every night and my yeah. mother was a lead singer in my dad's band Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of babysitters, and yet I almost don't remember them. Like, I really only remember the time with my parents because it was so rich, even when it was short. Um, them being super supportive of me when I started taking dance classes. And um, I remember a lot of piano always being played in the house. And... Um, like birthdays were always full of music and celebration in a really rich way that you de- like one definitely takes for granted when they enter other sort of mm-hmm. habitats you know, that isn't so prevalent or celebrated. Um, it's a hard question I feel because I don't really know any different. You know, yeah, I have a no, hard time like putting a vantage point or having a vantage point otherwise, but. No, that's really amazing that you guys share that, that they do understand that there is a dark side, but that it's, you know, there's so much of value in pursuing this kind of life. Yeah, and it, and I still continue to learn from their dark side lessons, from their successful artist lessons, because now my mother also works um, in a, at a hotel doing, like, selling weddings and doing conference services, and that's really helped family finances since the crash mm-hmm. uh, and my dad's still you know up and at it and I've been working for him a bunch this summer too trying to like do some sales and marketing and social media stuff but still like when you're young and you know adventurous and confident and like the world is at your fingertips it's the future and, and retirement and things like that seem so far away so now my parents are you know 60 years old and retirement is not an option and that's a really scary thing to think that as of now, my parents will not retire. Yeah. And that it's, it's terrifying. So that also informs a way that I continue to think about my future. Yeah. Um, not only, oh, I need to plan for retirement in a way that, you know, maybe they could have done sooner mm-hmm. or better. But also, I feel 110% obliged to make sure that they are taken care of. And when the day comes that they can't work they're not going to be kicked out of the house or something like that, you know? Right. I think about that a lot. 
Um, so you talked a little bit about this, about your company in Scotland and the audiences and kind of how that functioned, but how did you experience being a dancer in Europe? Like their approach to artists and like how you were treated and yeah, what, what was your lifestyle like there? My company was baked in a town called Dundee and it's about an hour north of Edinburgh. It's a very, very small town um, on the Tay River, which is beautiful. So that definitely helped it feel less claustrophobic and small when you've got the water so nearby. Small town living is was a new thing for me. And everybody warned me that I would hate it because <laughs> I'm such a city girl. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed it. I did get stir crazy at times, especially in the darkness of the winter when it would get pitch black at lunch at two o'clock oh my goodness that was horrible but um I actually really enjoyed the small town particularly relative to coming from such a hectic gypsy life in New York City felt like the the town was cathartic in all the ways I needed in that moment um and being taken care of in terms of a salary and health care was A, something I'd never experienced, and B, again, just part of like an overall healing process. And being a part of a small company, I think was important for me as like my first big company gig. There were eight dancers and two apprentices, and they were from, we were all from all over. I was the only American, and then there were, there's an Israeli woman, a French woman, um, um, a Danish woman, an English woman, and then in two English men, an Italian guy, a um, Belgian man, and a Polish guy. And we were just like the most motley crew. <laughs> and I think that was probably my favorite part about working in a company. Not even the healthcare, it was just actually the people and all the like the cultural things and, and not things, that's a terrible word, but um and not even stereotypes necessarily, though that's the word that comes to mind, but how much you can really learn about cultures through people, even though people are not at all sole representatives of where they come from. Mm-hmm. They, people still say a lot about where they come from without trying. You know, and even me, like I remember when I was working in East Africa in college with my um, Juilliard nonprofit group there. It was like at the end of the Bush years, and so I was like super embarrassed to be American and to like show my face abroad, and was like trying very hard to not be obvious about it. And I remember at one point, one of my English friends there was like, "Jenna, you're the most like American person I've ever met. Just own it. It's okay, <laughs> you know." So as much as we try to hide it, it's a part of our, it's it's the nurture part of how we are built, and. Um, I learned a lot about myself and my culture when I was over there. Um, to be more specific to your question, um, yeah, there's a different way of treating pe- dancers as employees, which I very much appreciated. It was cool. Like, yeah. it was cool to be listened to in that way. Hmm. Um, ultimately, the company lacked direction and like a, a moral compass for me and that was really devastating because I was so ready to commit I'm not even sure if I should say this but like almost everybody in the company has left or is leaving so no it ended up being like a really awful time and which just sort of like was a huge damper on what was otherwise like such a unique and dreamlike experience of 
being in a full-time situation. Um, but again, has further clarified value systems in which I want to exist in and define myself and my happiness and success by. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about um, your your hustling days before you left for Scotland when you were in New York for those years after Juilliard? Like, what kinds of things were you doing to piece together the financial part of your life and to give yourself a feeling of control in your artistic life? I think it- like I did everything under the sun for money. <laughs> I did the personal assisting, like I said. I managed like a boutique fitness gym for a while. I did a bunch of teaching, um, which was super rewarding. I taught at Lincoln Center and in the Bronx and in Harlem, and those were my favorite gigs. Um, and I feel like I've honestly, I kind of feel like I've blocked it out. <laughs> I know for you've one had an gig, intense couple of years. Task rabbit. What? You've had an intense couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> um, I found this one job on Task Rabbit where this wealthy couple, um, who is absolutely lovely, were having a like a Super Bowl party at their apartment in Battery Park City, and they had me over as like the sexy referee serving chips and. <laughs> cheese and and salsa and beer and I ended up befriending these people even though it was like such a strange context in which to work and to meet (laughs) so that was like really embarrassing but also fascinating at the same time um what else did I do for money terrible things Uh, (laughs) but what kept me um to answer the other part of your question what kept me feeling like I had a handle on my own sense of I guess artistic integrity or process was making work and that's obviously how I met you mm-hmm. um, and that started in college it started with me like I was saying earlier feeling like I want to express myself and my ideas about what I do but I don't think I'm very good at it in this dance realm you know like I don't have anything unique to offer so then finding different ways in which I could express that with dance as a medium but not as a soul medium so I was date my college sweetheart, who's still a really good friend of mine, is a cellist, mm-hmm. and he would take me to a bunch of orchestral concerts, and I started becoming obsessed with all of the spaces between orchestral movements, mm. and how they would, you know, perhaps the the second movement would be this beautiful, slow, like intoxicating piece and then it would end and then everybody would be shuffling the stands and flipping music and moving chairs and picking their nose and it was like a, <laughs> like an oral and a visual disaster and it like it, scar- it scarred me for life but also really inspired me like the idea that we as audience members who are there for the live experience can just suspend our disbelief between movements is so horrifying <laughs> so I made a dance piece about that and so I had a bunch of Juilliard dancers and um, a bunch of my best friends who are also musicians at the school uh, and I made a piece sort of looking at the different habits that exist between the fields and how we can all function as performers in the same realm by completing tasks instead of completing steps so that was like a first sort of like jut into me feeling like I could express myself without like cool moves <laughs> and then the summer before my senior year I did like a fun little Euro trip, you know, taking classes with different companies around. Um, and I was couch surfing in the Netherlands 
and I was staying with this violinist at the Royal Conservatory over there, and he and I immediately hit it off, and we're like, we have to make this piece, and it's going to be in this plexiglass box, and the dancers are going to be inside, and the music that's happening on the outside triggers sound waves that, like, dictate dancers' directives from the inside, and it was like, we had this whole idea, and I was like, yeah, yeah, this is great, like, and Juilliard has all this money, and they're like, they'll be totally on board, no, let's do it, because it's progressive, and it's Juilliard, and then I got back to school, and the dance department was like, we have no interest in this, you know, <laughs> or like, we only do dance pieces. Right. So then I went to speak to Ed Billows in the then music technology department, now Center for Innovation in the Arts. Um, and he was like, yeah, we can do something like that. And I was like, wait, what? Can you repeat that? <laughs> <laughs> you said yes. <laughs> <laughs> so ultimately, we did not make that piece, but he gave me a shit ton of resources and amazing creative staff who are still collaborators and friends of mine to this day. Um, to make a solo work. And I made a 30-minute piece that explored different ways in which we look at the body and using the technology that they offered as um, a ways of obscuring and manipulating the body. And I had a really fun time. It was definitely not like, you know, I look at it now and I'm like, that was not like the piece or like the profoundness that I thought I had in that moment, you know? But it was really important to start playing with that stuff and like what it meant to me to use technology and not in a smoke and mirrors way, but in like another way to express what I thought in that, at least for now, were unique ideas. Yeah. Um, but it became even more unique when I got to work with you <laughs> and Michelle. <laughs> well, and you're, and, and you're, also, you're also allowed to have a sketch, you know, like that was what was so freeing about the process when you and I worked together with Michelle for me. It was like, it's okay, we're making something, but this is in an educational environment, even though we're alumni. Mm -hmm. We have all these tools at our fingertips that we don't really know about, but we're learning about, and, like, it's okay if it's a sketch. That still has value. But, like, I wish I had seen the solo piece that you had done before, because I didn't get to see it. Um, but, you know, a lot of great ideas start in one place and end in another, and they take years to develop, so it doesn't mean that that one step wasn't a part of developing another piece that you'll do in 10 years, you know? Definitely. And I think it's especially important for our piece that we need to make clear that it was a sketch and a <laughs> series of scenes. And I still think it was such an important thing that we clarified that because there was pressure to, like, make it a final piece and to make it a thing. And I felt like there's pressure coming from the department sometimes of, like, we have to prove that we're worthy of institutional support in a way that, like, makes me so sad, you know? And I find it to be really fascinating because I feel like, not necessarily technology, but entrepreneurialism is like Juilliard's new thing. And when I started, I felt like it was still artist to citizen outreach. And like, that was the new thing. Mm -hmm. So these two things in particular, I find to be um, sort of at odds with Juilliard as a conservatory by definition. So it's always been really interesting to me to see how a place that is otherwise very based in conservation can have like parallel tracks that they're also promoting. And I think that there's a lot mm. of inherent conflict in that. I think that oftentimes I want to promote these things, but can't or um, ultimately just don't stand behind it when push comes to shove or when a budget is put in front of them, you know? Mm. And so the space that Ed gave us was so, Ed being the director of the tech department at Juilliard was so, rare and vital and important 
in ways that I don't think many artists ever get. They're yeah. told that they have to be a dancer and that being, you know, working in outreach or in a more collaborative thing is something other. Yeah. And that's not true. No, I mean, that was definitely something I felt I had to pursue outside of the normal realm when I was there as a student. It was It was definitely extracurricular. It was not sanctioned by the drama division. And they might be more supportive of it now, but it's still like... You have to be a, a little bit of an outlaw. Totally. I mean, I remember when, because I, like I was saying earlier, I did this nonprofit with my friends in college, and I would always do like a dance program at the end of the summer. But beginning of the summer, I would always be in Tanzania for the most part. And so my director, I remember he would bring me into his office like he does with a lot of students before, if not all students maybe, before the summer and just check in, like, what are you doing this summer? You know, and he'd be like, are you going back to Africa? And be like, yes, I am. Um, and explain I would also be doing a dance program, but yes, I am, you know, committed wholeheartedly to this project. And he'd ask me things like, well, you know, what are you going to eat there? You know, well, rice and beans, <laughs> pretty much a strict diet of rice and beans. So definitely feeling like that was such a huge um, moment of defiance, even though I look back at it now and I laugh, like, <laughs> However, you absolutely have to be an outlaw to, per, to pursue these other tracks. And it, it was just really hard to, like, come in at Juilliard during um, orientation and convocation and hear artists to citizens so heartfelt. And then when it comes down to it, it's, it's an auxiliary part of the curriculum. Hmm. And I, it really took me, like, almost four years to reconcile what that meant with my experience. But um, yeah, definitely shaped my time there and who I am now. Can you talk a little bit about that weirdness that is people telling dancers how they should treat their bodies? <laughs> <laughs> like what they should eat, how, how skinny they should be. Like it's such a strange thing, but it's um, unspoken and spoken at the same time. And I, you know, there's, I guess there's some similar things for actors, but it's not as explicit as it is for dancers. I think it's, this bad mode acting world I would argue in a different way but I would definitely not put dance as like the winner of all things body image issues (laughs) I think we share that plight but um the most interesting thing for me because I could I could talk about my experiences with food all day not necessarily I think I get bored within five minutes but there I've had a lot of experiences where I've dealt with people with very serious eating disorders and thankfully I have not, to this day, struggled in that way. I mean, I like to think that... No, I don't like to think. I think, in a sense, me worrying so much about it is a disorder in and of itself. But I have never um, been, like, textbook about it, which gives me some some spine in thinking about my body. Um, I guess it, however, it could just so easily be a, part, a huge part of the dark side. Totally. And like, like I'm, I didn't get that gig because of that. Actually, right. that's a great example. When I um, was a senior, I went to audition for this company in, in, in Switzerland in Geneva. And I had visited a couple months earlier and they told me to come and audition. I think like I made a good impression. And I got to the very end of the audition. They kept five women and they were looking to hire three. And I felt like I crushed it. Like, totally in the rehearsal director was a fan and I had my interview and he told me I was très musculaire so that meant code word you're fat and so I was not hired needless to say but it was such a horrifying experience where my body 
was ultimately the deciding factor and in a moment where I definitely thought I had earned aesthetically, physically the gig. Um, and of course it's more complicated than that. It also could have very easily been a visa thing or whatever, but mm-hmm. I do remember in that interview hearing essentially cold word, you're too big being the, like knowing that that was the end. So that sucked. But for me today to hear, like, I think a lot of people talk about it being so much better today than it was growing up. Like I did all the ballet camps growing up and it was awful and it was much more explicit in those days. Really? I don't think it's necessarily better now. I think it's disguised differently. I think there's a huge and, and frankly, amazing trend of healthy eating, of uh, fitness. I think these are important pillars that we hold, that dancers have always held to a certain extent. However, I think now that schools are obliged to offer healthy, healthy eating seminars and, you know, smart diet tip seminars and things like that, the, the incentive to lose weight is now disguised as healthy eating. Hmm. And many dancers become obsessed with fitness and their low-carb diets and their gluten intolerant diets and things, that, and those are all real things. However, I think dancers are much more likely because we're very obsessive to take these things on and call it that when it's really um, just another uh, iteration of an eating disorder. I mm-hmm. think that still runs very rampant in our field. Um, I think we're doing better about talking about it, but it's, it's even still, even though we're talking about it and feminism is trending and you know body love is trending, the truth is, is that companies still uphold these body ideals. So even if all of me and my peers are on the same page about body love, if the people hiring us aren't, then still yeah. nothing in an underlying way is ever going to change. And so that's what I think about a lot right now in terms of food and bodies. Yeah. When you are in that place where you're feeling really uninspired and in the darkness are there things like concrete things that you reach for again and again to help you get out of it like a book or something you do or a place you go or anything like that love to read the newspaper that's kind of like the one thing that takes me out of my head and Mm -hmm. makes me feel relevant yeah um I love to read in general I always have like five books that I'm like halfway through on my dresser but when I read the news I feel like I'm doing my civil duty in some way. And now I also don't have to like blow my nose in the business section. I can actually read it. (laughs) That's a great new addition to my life. Um, I read the paper. That is so important to me. That's like my version of morning journaling, I think. Yeah. Also just seeing shows and particularly non-dance shows. And often it doesn't have to be like a a fancy theater or anything, just something local or done by my friends or like a, like a, like a funky gallery situation in the city, mm-hmm. like anything that is ultimately going to prove conducive to my own artistic thinking and give me fresh ideas helps me get out of the dark side because they may not ultimately be good ideas, but they're fresh. Yeah. And that sense of freshness sort of, you know, starts to rub out the darkness even momentarily. And then is there anything that you've seen recently in Chicago that you want to recommend? Ooh, yeah. Um, I saw a show done by Third Rail Projects, which is based in New York, and also um, 
a theater company, Albany Park Theater Project here in Chicago, and uh, a bunch of local school students. It's um, They repurposed a closed-down Catholic school, and they reopened it as a as a public school, but a, but a, a theater. So it's not a public school, but you would never know. I mean, the set design is exquisite. <laughs> sort of like definite, you know, you know, when, if you go to sleep no more, it's like you could not even follow anybody around and just like pick through the drawers and it would be the most convincing, you know, 1930s or whatever time it is um, set piece. Anyways, it's a beautiful set and you as audience members play students in the school and you are taken around into different scenes and different classrooms and closets and back offices. And it speaks a lot about the plight that Chicago public school system is going through right now, which is huge and brutal and depressing, but also about what it means to, to grow up and to be in a multicultural community and things that are really unique to Chicago, but also representative of sort of everywhere. Hmm. And the performers are all students that are, I think they're all high school students and they're so brave and raw. It is so inspiring. They're so like many of them are like more convincing than so many professionals I know just because they're somehow not as afraid. Like they're just like that rawness is so intoxicating. And even if it's not like, even if their acting skills aren't like convincing, you still believe them because they're in it, you know what mm. I mean? And they're not trying to do anything else other than what they're doing. They're very clear about the show that they're inside of. And I think that's also rare for art these days is to, like, know exactly what it is. I think art tries often to, like, do a lot and be a lot and rarely, like, actually knows what it's doing deep down. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just a really heartening piece, and it's relevant, and it's rare that you get work that's politically charged in that sense that is also successful I find I feel like especially for dance there's lots of pieces that are like and this is about the election and then it's just another dance piece but like there may be a speech as a voiceover or like there may be like a mime section where someone's like putting a ballot into a voting box I mean it's a terrible example but like (laughs) bad dance like that that claims to be thematic but isn't is like gives political art a really bad rep (laughs) So it was really refreshing to see this this show. Um, also, not recent, but I do I did want to mention a show I did last summer in Boston um, with the American Repertory Theater. It was a new opera called Crossing, uh, composed in the libretto by Matt Coyne, a Juilliard alum, um, a young composer, human extraordinaire. <laughs> it was a fantastic opera, and it was an utter joy and pleasure to be a part of. And what stood out to me, among many things, was actually our review in the Times by Tomasini, the main opera critic. Because we got pretty great reviews, but he said something to the something to the effect of like it being episodic, and so thus it wasn't as successful as it could have been. Hmm. And I just found that to be super interesting because when I hear like that the piece was episodic, I would actually draw the opposite conclusion because it's a piece that was made in our time where we do consume entertainment in episode in, in episodic ways in Netflix, Netflix binges and <laughs> in short commercials and in Facebook binges. And yeah. I feel like our life these days isn't, is often episodic. And so the fact that Matt was able to make 
a work, an opera, no less, something that is generally like a long, massive experience into something more, perhaps more easily digestible and episodic. To me, that's a raging success. So I'm super inspired by work that is, is something very new and refreshing, but without like being a flash mob, you know, like he still made an opera, but he was able to really redefine what was inside of it. And that sense of subtlety is also really important in new work. And then something I look for when I make work, something, but more importantly, when I'm in the dark side and looking to be inspired, what I look for when I go and see work is subtlety and truth and rawness, especially today when there's so many smoke and mirrors, right? (laughs) So many filters. Oh my God. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much, Jenna. This is amazing. It's my pleasure. I'm still nervous, but. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is great. I've really enjoyed it. for listening to the compass podcast i'm leah walsh more episodes are coming soon please look for us on facebook and itunes i'd like to thank the following people for their generosity the compass cover art is by kim miller music by brendan spieth audio assistance from nick choksi and a special thanks to frankie j alvarez see you next time Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.